All right, church, we'll go ahead and take your Bibles as you're being seated and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. If you don't know where Habakkuk is in your Bible, it's right between Nahum and Zephaniah. Is that helpful? I love being helpful as your pastor. Uh, If you're not sure where Nahum and Zephaniah are, then what you can do is you can open up to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and go backwards to Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, and then eventually you'll get to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is like the the St. Louis blues of the Bible. (laughs) It only gets preached like every 60 years, so... We're going to take a, li- take a look at this, uh, what's called a minor prophet in the Old Testament. It's called a minor, these 12 minor prophets are not minor because they're less important than the major prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're called minor because they're shorter. They're smaller books than the major prophets. Significantly smaller in some cases. Habakkuk is only three chapters long. And so our series through this book, How Long O Lord, will take us for the next four weeks through these three chapters. And we're going to examine the overall message of this book and see how God might impact our lives 2,600 years after this book was written. And of the Old Testament prophets, I would say that Habakkuk is the most contemporary, if I could use that term. Here's what I mean by that. If I, if I were to write out my thoughts on the state of our world right now, they would sound a lot like what Habakkuk wrote so many years ago. And his issues are our issues. He's living in a fallen world, trying to make sense of a fallen world. We live in a fallen world too, trying to make sense of it, trying to represent the Lord in this world. So I think as we read this book and work through it, you're going to sense a lot of the ideas are immediately applicable in our lives. So today what I want to do is just introduce this great, great book of the Old Testament and look at the first four verses of this book and the big questions that Habakkuk interrogates the Lord with. So here we go. Here's your outline for today. You can take your notes and see these, follow along as we go. Four questions. Who is Habakkuk? What is his message? Why is he so uneasy in this book? And then what should we learn from him? Those four questions today, and then we're done. Let's start here. Who is Habakkuk? Who is Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a prophet of God with a burden. Habakkuk is a prophet of God with a burden. In verse 1 of Habakkuk, the the author writes, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And this word oracle in Hebrew Actually, literally, oracle means burden. And, and that's, that's a good way to describe a prophet's task in the Old Testament. They carried and they delivered a burden from God to the people of the Lord. God gave them a message, and this was burdensome to them, and they had to unleash it on the people of God. I know a little something about that every Sunday. But I'll say that my, my task, if it is burdensome, it's not nearly as burdensome as, let's say, Habakkuk and what he has to say to the people of Israel. And if you know anything about the prophetic office of the Israelite prophet, um, you, you know that sometimes it was dangerous to deliver the oracles of God. It was a hard task. It was a difficult task. It was a burdensome task. It was in some cases a dangerous task. 
And Habakkuk has an oracle. He has this burden from the Lord. And, and what's interesting about this is it's unlike any other prophet's oracle in the Old Testament. Because as most prophets, they speak directly to the people. Thus says the Lord. And they speak to the people on behalf of the Lord. Habakkuk is different. He doesn't speak directly to the people. He speaks instead to the Lord. And even argues with the Lord. And what's fascinating about Habakkuk, this book, is that the Lord claps back. The Lord is not afraid to answer Habakkuk's questions. And so they have this little conversation, this dialogical interchange between each other. And let's not forget, though, this is an oracle. Why is this going on? Why is Habakkuk recording this? For us, he's got something he wants to teach the people of God 2,600 years ago with the Israelites initially, but also by the Holy Spirit to us, the church today, if we have ears to hear what the prophet has to say. So Habakkuk was a prophet of God with a burden. Also, here's a little bit more about Habakkuk. He was also a musician, possibly a priest musician of the Levites. The end of the book says this. You can read this on the screen. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk wrote at least part of this book to be set to music. And, and I find that fascinating. Habakkuk has more in common with Ryan Jackson than he does with me. He's a, he's a priest musician. And I was th- we were talking about this as elders this last Sunday. And I told the elders, if, if Habakkuk was alive today, he'd be a country music star. Because <laughs> first of all, he's from the South. We'll talk about that later. But also because his, you know... He's, he's joyful and at the end, but he's sad at the beginning. A lot of the book is very sad. So you know how a country music song goes. I lost my dog. I lost my wife. I lost my truck, but it'll all be okay in the end. That's country music, right? Well, that's kind of like what Habakkuk writes here. He's just a little more theologically sophisticated than a lot of country music. Habakkuk was a prophet. He was a musician. Let me say this too about Habakkuk. He was also, if I could just address his personality type for a second, he's a melancholy. Some of you know all about that. He's a melancholy. He He was a thinker. He mulled over the problems of his world. He thought deeply about the struggles going on in Israel and elsewhere. And he grieved over them. He wrestled with them. He hurt over them. His name in Hebrew is actually Havakuk, Havakuk, and that's derived from a Hebrew word, Havak. Just turn your neighbor right now and say, Havak. Work on that hate. It's very important in Hebrew. And that word in Hebrew means to embrace or hug. His name is derived from that, and that's apropos, because as you read Habakkuk in this book, you just think to yourself, man, this guy just needs a hug. He's having a rough go of it. He's living through tough times. He's a melancholy. He's a, he's a thinker and a feeler. He's, you might say, emotionally intelligent. He's in touch with the world. He's in touch with what's going on. He's hurting over it. And he wrestles through those things through his relationship with God. Everybody with me? Not apart from God, he wrestles through the hard things going on in his world through his relationship with God. Are you like that, Christian? Are you now? Or is it like I'm going through this tough thing and God's over there and I'm going to do this thing on my own and God, God can't handle my tough questions. God can't handle my struggles in faith. 
Yeah, he can. Yeah, he can. And Habakkuk is going to show us, this is why I think this is contemporary and practical and helpful for all of us. He's going to show us how we can do that. How we can struggle with the things going on in this world, in our lives, through our relationship with God, in relationship with God. Does that appeal to you? Anybody interested in how to do that? I want to learn how to do that better. So this leads me to the next question. What is Habakkuk's message? What's his message? Now this is actually kind of tricky because if you try, I mean, it's like a country song. If you try to derive Habakkuk's message strictly from chapter one or chapter two of this book, you're going to end up with an incomplete message. So you've got to go to chapter three. You've got to go to the end of the book to really understand the message as a whole. And if, if you try to understand what Habakkuk's saying by the first four verses of the book, which we'll look at today, you're going to, you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion about what Habakkuk is writing because Habakkuk in verse verses one through four sounds like a despondent, complaining, God defying malcontent. And that's not how he ends the book. I'll give you an example of his hurting. Look at verse two with me. So after the introduction in verse one, Habakkuk says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. I don't know if Habakkuk maybe was crying as he wrote this or struggling with this. I don't know whether to scream this or to say it softly in despair. Probably, probably depends. Depends on the situation that I'm dealing with. But this, this feels right in some cases in my life. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. God, anybody ever a moment like that with the Lord before? Where are you, God? Where are you right now? I need you desperately and I don't think you're listening. Are you listening, God? Now, is that the message of this book? You know, voice your displeasure before the Lord and... Just be a faithless God-defying questioner? No, that's just the beginning. And so, you know, what is the message? I actually struggled with whether or not to tell you this morning what the message is. Like, should we just kind of wrestle through it for four weeks till we get to the end? But I, I decided for the sake of, I don't know, clarity and just, just to let you know what the message is, to skip forward to chapter three. Typically, I don't like doing that. I don't like going to the end and seeing what it says and kind of the conclusion of the matter. You know, Alistair and I, we went to the library the other day and he got this big book and he looked at the last three pages of the book first and saw the end. And then I was like, you can't do that. That's not right. You got to read the beginning and hold it in the middle to get to the end. But, you know, now I feel like a hypocrite this morning because I'm going to tell you the end. And in some cases, I think you need to do that. For instance, I don't think you can truly understand the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, if you don't understand the eventual death and resurrection of Christ in Matthew 27 through 28. I think actually all the Gospels are written that way. You have to read them, as D.A. Carson says, in a sense, backwards. You have to read them with the end in sight because they're, as you read those Gospels, and you guys know this, we just worked through the Gospel of John, as you read through those books, there's this foreboding sense of inevitability that climaxes in the final pages with a cross and with an empty tomb. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand the rest of the message. And all four of the Gospels end there. They're all driving towards that moment. And so similarly, I would say you can't understand or make sense of Habakkuk without understanding where he's ultimately going in this book. And here's where he's going. Turn with me to the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 17, or you can read this on the screen. 
This is the end of the matter, according to Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is like the worst possible scenario for an Israelite. No food, no animals, total despair. Though that happens, says Habakkuk, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. If you don't understand that, you don't understand Habakkuk. If you don't understand the end, if you listen, Harvest Decatur, if you want to question God, if you want to ask him some hard, difficult things like Habakkuk does, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you, but you have to end there. You have to end here where Habakkuk does and praise and rejoice with the Lord, regardless of circumstances. You know, I've had my moments. I've had my, oh God, where are you moments? Just like Habakkuk. I've had my moments like that this last week. I don't know how many of you also maybe had a moment like that this week. I said, why, oh God, would you allow the politicians in this state to, to allow the most perver, uh, per, permissive and egregious form of abortion in the whole country? Where are you, God? Stop this wickedness. Anybody have a moment like that this last week? I wouldn't blame you if you did. And yet, I'll tell you this much, I'm still here this morning, Sunday morning, worshiping the Lord, regardless of what happens in our state, in our country, in our world. I know my wife has had her where are you God moments the last few months. I know my wife's father has had those moments as they've watched my mother-in-law suffer and suffer and die a horrific death from ALS. Where are you, God? Why do you allow things like ALS in this world? It's horrible. And yet I can pretty much assure you that she was at church this morning worshiping the Lord, even at the funeral this last week, worshiping the Lord, despite the suffering that they're going through. And if you want to pray prayers like this, where are you, God? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. If you want to complain and question to God, okay, well, maybe I'll try to talk you out of that. But regardless, you've got to end up where Habakkuk ends up. Habakkuk 3, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know what's going on with all this confusion, all this hurt, all this difficulty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You've got to finish there. You've got to end up where Job ends up. Though he slay me, Still, I will hope in him. So here's the message of the book. Sorry, it's taken me a few minutes to get there. You can write this down under number two. What is Habakkuk's message? Even when life is hard, we need to trust God and act with integrity. It's a good place, even fathers in this room, for an amen. Can I get an amen from the fathers? I've heard that Father's Day is like the day in churches when nobody goes to church, all the dads go fishing. Not so at Harvest Decatur. I'm glad to see that. Good job, dads. Here's what Habakkuk says in verse two. Here's his complaint before the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Who talks to the Lord like this? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arises. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth crooked or, or perverted. Now, I mean, you read that and that, that sounds incredibly bold to talk to the Lord like that. Incredibly argumentative with God. But keep in mind what I said in chapter 13. This is a man who loves God. This is a man who's committed to God. This is a man who, who, who knows that God loves Israel. And so he's having trouble reconciling what's going on in his world right now with what he knows of God. And so he's, he's asking a question of somebody that he knows, that he trusts. And this man is processing his doubts in relationship with God. That's what he's doing. You know, when Sonny and I first got married... It's funny because we got married and, and you guys know Sonia. Sonia is a pleaser by nature. She's a phlegmatic. That's her personality. And so when we first got married, we didn't, we didn't have an argument for several months. She, she just kind of agreed with what her headstrong husband decided on stuff. I love you, Sonia, if you're listening to this podcast. Come back soon. But, you know, as we, the longer we were married, the more she started to speak her mind. And she started to disagree with me and she started to argue her case. And then sometimes her arguments sounded better than my arguments. And that made me nervous as a husband because I was insecure about that. And so I, I just asked her, I said, sweetie, why weren't you like this when we first got married? You didn't used to argue with me like you do. You don't argue with other people like you argue with me. What happened? Can we go back to that place where you didn't argue with me so much? And Sonia said something that I will never forget. It, it bowled me over. She said, when we first got married, I didn't know if your love for me was unconditional. I didn't know if I could trust you with my opinions. But now I know you love me. Now I know that you will be faithful to me no matter what. Now I know if I disagree with you, you'll, you'll stand by me. And so I'm not afraid to argue with you. And when she told me that, I was like, argue away, sweetheart. <laughs> Let's have an argument right now. You like this couch? I don't like this couch. You like it? I don't like it. She was secure in my love for her to voice her opinion. Now, I'll give you that as an illustration. That's what I see here with Habakkuk. That's what I see. This, this is, these are not the angry complaints of a God-defying agnostic. This is not somebody who's looking to pick a fight with God as God's enemy. This is an argument among friends. This, these are the requests of a man that is so comfortable in his relationship with God and so comfortable in God's love for him that he's not afraid to ask some deep and difficult questions of God. And I don't know about you, but that is comforting to me as I approach my own relationship with God. You know, there's a lot about Habakkuk that we don't know. We don't know, we don't know exactly when he prophesied. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his daddy was. Typically with a prophet, you know, they would say this prophet prophesied in the days of King Hezekiah and his daddy was so-and-so and we don't, I mean, we know less about Habakkuk than we know just about any other prophet in the Old Testament. But despite all that, I, 
I feel like Habakkuk's message is more contemporary than any of the other prophets. What he says here, I could say right now about our world. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. That's the Facebook verse right there. That's the social media outrage age that we live in. Strife and contention arise. It's everywhere. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Why? I might as well say something similar to that right now. Why the violence, Lord, in our world? Especially against Christians. Why, why do you allow it? Why the iniquity, Lord, in our own country? I can't watch something on TV. I can't watch something on Netflix without sin pouring out all over the place. I can't buy a product in this day without that product be, being tainted by some kind of political activism that does sesh, sexual revolution politics. That's the world we live in. I can't go to the grocery store without seeing something evil on the, on the newspapers, on the magazines, in the rack. I can't listen to a podcast without my blood boiling over the injustices of this world. Whew, calm down, Tony. Are y'all feeling what I'm feeling? Why, Lord? Do something about this. I have to take a deep breath. I have to remember that when life is confusing, even when life is hard, we need to trust God and act with integrity. Let me say that again. Even when life is hard, even when life is difficult, even when life is confusing, we need to trust God and act with integrity. When this world seems like it's spinning out of control and we're, we question God's sovereignty in it, we need to trust God and act with integrity. And by the way, I think that's why God gave us the church. Because if it, if it wasn't for Sunday morning, sometimes I think by Friday, Saturday, I would just implode with the fallenness of this world that, that beats us down for six days. And God, it's almost like God knew that we needed this every seventh day. Saturdays in the Old Testament, Sundays in the New Testament, people gathered together giving praise to God saying, I will rejoice in the Lord no matter what's going on in this world. I will stay faithful to him. It's going to come to an end someday. Right now, I'm going to work through it. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go worship once a week to restore my soul. I hope you're taking advantage of that week by week by week, Christian. Habakkuk 3.18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Without that weekly reminder in corporate worship, I, I think we would lose our bearings. And maybe if you felt that before, if you've ex experienced a time of churchlessness in your life. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Why is Habakkuk so uneasy in this book? I shared with you why I'm uneasy right now in our world. Why is he so uneasy? Well, because he knows that God's judgment is looming. That's essentially the message of all the prophets. God's judgment is coming. Israel, you better repent. And Habakkuk knows that. You know, like I said earlier, we don't know exactly when Habakkuk wrote this book, but we can make some intelligent guesses as to when he wrote. And by the way, as far as the prophets go, the, the major prophets, the minor prophets, there were three times in Israel's history where the prophetic activity was really high. There was uh, that time in northern Israel 
right before they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, that there was a lot of prophetic activity. There was that time in Judah, the southern kingdom, just before they were taken captive by the Babylonians, that prophetic activity was really high. And then after the exile, when they came back from Babylon, then we had more prophetic activity. And there's a reason for that. You know, if you remember, David ruled in Israel roughly 1000 BC, then his kingdom was split in two because of his, the actions of his grandson. So Rehoboam took the southern kingdom and two tribes. Jeroboam took the northern kingdom and 10 tribes. Those 10 tribes existed. They didn't have one good king throughout their whole entire history. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 720 BC, never really to be heard from again, except as Samaritans. They intermingled with the Assyrian population, became Samaritans. Those are the ones that were at odds with the Jews in the days of Jesus. Many prophets prophesied in the northern kingdom during that era, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, before they were taken into captivity. Other prophets prophesied in Judah just before Babylon came and took them into captivity in 597 BC. Prophets like Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, if you remember, prophesied from Babylon as a captive taken by the Babylonians. And then you have the post-exilic prophets. You have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, who when they came back to Jerusalem started to prophesy and they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. Now, when did Habakkuk prophesy? Which of those three was his era? Well, more than likely, he prophesied just right before the Babylonian invasion in Judah. Look at chapter one, verse six. Here's why I say that. Because in chapter one, verse six, God says that he is raising up the Chaldeans, i.e. the Babylonians, to come and to punish the Israelites. We'll talk about that in more depth next week. So more than likely, Habakkuk prophesied just before the Babylonians, including Nebuchadnezzar, came with his great army to conquer Jerusalem. And by the way, in that southern kingdom of Judah, there was a time when there were good kings. Asa was a good king in Judah and honored the Lord. Hezekiah was a good king who honored the Lord. Uh, Josiah was a good king who honored the Lord. And Josiah, but Josiah actually died an early death, and he had three sons who ruled over Judah, and they all, all three were wicked men. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. You guys writing this stuff down? There'll be a quiz on this later. Josiah had three wicked kings just right before Babylon came. And those wicked kings, I, I think, actually, Habakkuk wrote during the time of Josiah's sons. And I think, actually, Habakkuk's ministry straddled the kingdom of Josiah, this good, righteous king. Everything's good. God is he's honoring the Lord. God is responding with blessing on the kingdom of Judah. He lived during that era, and then after Josiah died, he lived as well through these three wicked sons. And as these wicked sons were bringing Israel down, he says, How long, O Lord, take us back to the time of Josiah. Take us back to the righteous kingdom that we were. Intervene, Lord, because I know if we don't do something now, if we don't fix this now, something worse is coming. We saw the northern kingdom being taken into captivity, and Habakkuk's worried about that for his own kingdom. You know, Habakkuk knows the ins and the outs of the Old Testament covenant and what he made with the Israelites, what God made with the Israelites. He knows that faithfulness leads to blessing. He knows that rebellion leads to misery and destruction. So he desperately wants God to intervene before the problem gets bad, really bad, irreversibly bad in Judah. And so that's the reason for the tone here. That's the reason Habakkuk cries out in anguish and exasperation before the Lord. 
Do something, Lord. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Take us back to the days of Josiah when we had good leaders, righteous leaders. So finally, let me, let me ask and answer the last question. I said, that's a lot, Pastor Tony. What do I take away from that? What should we learn from Habakkuk? What should we learn from him? And here's my answer. Here's what you should learn from him. Faith in the midst of confusion and uncertainty. You should learn, Harvest Decatur, how to trust God when life is confusing. Does life get confusing sometimes? When things are uncertain. You know, the most famous verse in Habakkuk is Habakkuk 2.4. Why don't you all look at that with me in your Bibles? Habakkuk 2.4. Tell me if you've heard this before. Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. Y'all heard that before? You might say, Pastor Tony, I thought that started with the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. No, it, listen, everybody listening? God's people have always been saved by faith. The righteousness of God has always been appropriated for the people of God by faith. And, and that didn't start with Habakkuk. That started with Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That started with Adam and Eve. After they sinned in the garden, they were saved by faith. The Old Testament Israelites offered up those animal sacrifices as an act of their faith. And so Habakkuk, his great contribution in the scripture it's teaching us how to have faith in God, how to trust him when, when life is wonky. And sometimes life gets wonky. How to trust God when life is confusing and this world is full of uncertainty. We can be certain of God's goodness and God's ultimate salvation even when we are uncertain about world events or the economy or the health of our loved ones. There is a certainty in the Lord in the midst of the uncertainty of this world. Everybody with me? Let me say it this way. There is a certainty about our eternal future when there's uncertainty about the near and at hand. We can trust God and the righteous will live by faith. Listen, one of the things that, that you're going to have to wrestle with as a Christian, and if you haven't done this yet, you will. One of the things you're going to have to wrestle through, reckon with, is why does God allow evil in our world? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought about that? If you haven't yet, you will. Why does God allow things, you know, bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow good things conceivably to, to, to happen to bad people? Why doesn't he intervene? Why does God allow things like the Jewish Holocaust? Six million Jews put to death in the Second World War. Why didn't he stop it? Why does God allow things like sex trafficking? Why does God allow things like abortion and genocide and famine that causes people to die? Can God stop it? 
Yes, he can. Does he? Not always. Why? Why? It's the question, it's, it's called theodicy. It's something that theologians have wrestled with for centuries. And for some of you, it's more personal than that. I know it is. Why does God allow that person to get promoted at work even though they're lazy? Why does God allow that family to have plenty while me and my family, we're constantly struggling? Why does God allow that person to birth six children while I can't have any? Why does God allow that person to have multiple suitors and multiple marriage partners and yet I don't have any? If you haven't asked questions like that of the Lord, you will someday. You will. And how are you going to process that? Christian, are you going to become so emotionally attached to what you think God should do that you can't trust him in the midst of that doubt and confusion? You might say, I'd never do that, Pastor Tony. I, I have good friends who have walked away from the Lord because God didn't answer their prayers or hear their requests like they wanted him to. I'm serious. And if you can't get to the place where Habakkuk gets to. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand it, but I'm going to worship you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have faith in you. I'm going to trust in your sovereign purposes, even when I can't make sense of it right now, right in the here and now. If you can't do that, then you're, you're going you're to get to a bad place in your Christian walk. Let me just say that, Harvest Decatur, that when you, when you get to that place in your life, when you're asking hard questions and you're struggling with the Lord, You come here to Habakkuk and you soak in this book and you remember that you're not the first person in this world to ask tough questions of God. And you remember too that Habakkuk processed those questions and those struggles in his relationship with the Lord, with the Lord, in faith. I think that's why the Holy Spirit put that in, put that book in the Bible. I think that's why it's here. I think that's why it's in the canon of Scripture, so that you would have this 2,600-year-old book to show you how to make sense of life, how to trust God when, when life doesn't make sense. And by the way, let me say this. Why was Habakkuk uneasy here? It's because he knew that God's judgment was looming. You know, there, there, should, there should be some uneasiness in us, too. God's judgment is looming in our day, too. And he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. And he will reward the righteous and he will punish the unrighteous. A time of reckoning is coming. God is no man's debtor. And all evil will be punished in God's timing. By the way, you might say, well, I wish God was a little quicker with that. Careful now. You sure you want instantaneous judgment from God? What does the Bible say about God? He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Speaking of instantaneous judgment, I heard a story once about a man. We'll just call this man Phil. And Phil was boarding a plane. And when Phil got on this plane, there was somebody in his seat, a man who was dressed in a really nice Armani suit and was typing away on his laptop. 
And so Phil politely asked this man to move. Hey, this is my seat. You know, can you move? And, and the man just brushed him off and said no. And Phil was stunned, a little frustrated with this man. So he, he asked him nicely. And the man again refused and this time became belligerent. I'm not moving. And so by this time, the flight attendant came to Phil and noticed the commotion and just asked him, you know, can you just sit over here, please? You know, the plane's about to take off. And so Phil, he reluctantly complied, obviously a little agitated by the whole thing. Well, shortly before the plane took off, a woman rushed onto the plane who was a standby passenger. And there were two things, two curious things about her situation. First of all, she had an infant child with her, about a year old. And then also, secondly, the only available seat in this entire plane was next to this Armani suit guy. So she sat down with her infant child right next to him, and Phil had a view of the whole thing and was gleefully watching this guy's frustration level start to rise because the baby, from the time that that flight took off to the time that it landed, was not quiet at all, was crying, screaming, wailing, you know how it goes. But just before the plane landed, the baby got really quiet. And then Phil noticed that this baby was starting to change colors from white to yellow to green. And just as the plane touched down, this baby just unloaded her lunch all over Armani Sukai. <laughs> And, you know, this guy was inconsolable. He was angry. There was cussing. There was frustration. There was anger. The flight attendants came and they tried to clean it up. But you know how it is with that. You don't clean that up. You just kind of press it deeper into the fabric. So finally, they got this guy cleaned up. You know, the mom, of course, was mortified. The only person that was doing good was the baby. She was feeling good by this time. And Phil was having a good time with this, too. So the plane landed, you know, the doors open and this guy just bolts. He's furious. He's angry. Armani suit guy leaves and Phil's about to get off too. And the flight attendant says, hey, just hold on for a second. It's like, all right. So he sits still and everybody leaves the plane except for Phil. And then after everybody gets off, the flight attendant comes to Phil with a bottle of champagne and two glasses, fills his cup, fills her cup and together they toasted the justice of God. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Careful now. I just set you up with that story. I mean, I know how it is. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, maybe gives you a gesture that's not very nice what do you want you would like for their gas tank to explode in that moment wouldn't you instantaneous retribution that's what i want you sure you want that you know god is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and one of the core things that we learn as christians brace yourself this is going to hurt your feelings we're more like Armani suit guy than we are like innocent Phil in this world. We got any sin-free people in this room this morning? Easy now, easy. <laughs> Gas tank's going to explode on the way home. <laughs> we're all sinners. 
who need the grace of God. Is that true or false? We need it. We need it. And God, you know, I don't know if Habakkuk could have seen this. Maybe he just had a misty notion of what God was going to do. 600 years after he wrote this book, he had to trust him in the midst of his questioning. But 600 years after Habakkuk wrote this book, God in his mercy sent his son to come and to die. Unjustly, by the way, for our sins so that we might be saved. That was God's plan. I don't think Habakkuk knew that, not really. But that death of that Savior, not only did Jesus die for my sin and for your sin and for the 12 disciples, but he also died for Habakkuk's sin. And praise the Lord, because we serve a God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and the righteous will live by faith. So, we need to learn to trust God in the midst of uncertainty and injustice and difficulty and confusion. Does Habakkuk learn to trust God? Does he? And, and also, you know, he's asking these questions of God. Does God answer Habakkuk? Yeah, actually he does. But his answer is something that Habakkuk can't understand at all. In fact, he's more confused after God answers him than when he first asked the question. I don't have time to get into that right now. Come back next week and we'll talk more about it. And we'll see God's answer. But here's how I want to close our service. I want to close in a word of prayer. And then we're going to celebrate God's loving kindness and God's forgiveness for sinners like us by singing together. Let's bow together in a word of prayer and then we'll do that. God, we do not know always what you're doing in this world. And there are times, Lord, when we cry like Habakkuk, we cry out for justice, we cry out for action, we cry out for you to silence the wicked and to destroy the wicked. And yet, Lord, even in the midst of that, we need to trust in your sovereign purposes. Help us to do that, Lord. And God, we're thankful that you don't exact instantaneous retribution on sinners. Because there's no person in this room without sin. There's no person in this room that can stand before a righteous God and be justified. We are not justified by our actions or by our sinlessness. We're justified by our Savior, Jesus Christ, his blood that paid for our sin. And we stand on that. We celebrate that. We may ask questions. We may have doubts, Lord. But in our questioning, we come back to this. We come back to Christ, our Savior, our Lord. We worship you.